Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. Scripture for today's teaching is Matthew 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to God. All right, short and sweet. There you go. You guys grab a seat. Hey, good morning. My name is Andrew. I get to service one of our pastors here, and uh, it's fun to be with you. If, if today's your first time at Frontline South, love to meet you after the service, and if there's ways that we can answer questions that you have or even wrestle with some of the claims of Christianity, we'd love to do that. Uh, we are really excited to be wrapping up. This is the last Sunday of Advent, uh, and it's going to be a really bizarre approach today. So if you were kind of coming in expecting a typical incarnation, birth of Jesus story, that's not really what we're going to do today. Uh, we will do that on Christmas Eve, so come back for that. Uh, but today we're going to take just a bit of a different approach. Uh, also be looking forward to, after, after this Sunday, the next two Sundays, we're going to have a short Christmas Tide sermon series. I don't know if you guys realize, but Christmas is actually not just one day, it's 12 days. Historically, the church has celebrated Christmas over the course of 12 days. And, uh, and so if, you're, if, if everybody says, oh, it's just, it's just the 25th. No, that kicks off Christmas, but you actually get 12 whole days to celebrate and to remember. And so we're going to kind of lean into the incarnation, both of those two Sundays following this Sunday. Excited for that. And then we'll get back into the Gospel of Mark. And that's kind of our sweet spot. I think we're going to live in that until Easter and wrap it up. So that's coming up ahead. Uh, really excited to jump in today. So if you have your Bible, grab it. Matthew chapter one. I want to take a second and pray that the love of God, that candle that we lit representing the love of God would actually be felt in real ways today. <clears throat> Father, I pray today that through the power of your spirit, that you would allow people today who feel like there are parts of their lives that are untouchable with your love, there are parts of their stories that are beyond, redeem, beyond getting to be redeemed. Uh, people that today are carrying shame, carrying pain, carrying brokenness, carrying need. I pray today that the love of the Father would be poured out in their hearts through the Spirit. I just realized there's nothing I can say, there's, there's nothing I could do that would cause your love to flow freely in this room, but you want to do that. <clears throat> so would you move and would you pour out your love in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, <clears throat> one of my all-time favorite shows, it actually aired in 2004 all the way to 2010 on ABC, was the show Lost. Any Lost fans out there? Really? Wow. Okay, so this, is, this may not make any sense, what I'm about to say. Um, if you've ever had a show that you love, just imagine whatever that is for you. Uh, a show that's breathtaking, it's brilliant, Lost was incredible, the acting was next level, uh, the character development was mind-boggling. I mean, it truly was the very first show that my wife and I ever binge-watched. I didn't know what binge-watching was until Lost was released, and then we just binge-watched the heck out of that show. 
And everyone was so excited for the ending because every episode would end with like answering one or two questions and creating about 20 more questions. Do you know what I mean? Where you're like, what is happening? I need answers. I need to know what's going on here. So the producers announced the finale. We're so excited. Everybody gathers in the living room to watch it. And then the last episode comes. Wah, wah. It was terrible right? I'm not going to spoil it for you, but it did not answer any of our questions. It left you like, what? Did I just waste six years of my life on this show? And and I've been told by people who know the show better than me, like Pastor Brandon, who named two of his kids and his dog after characters on Lost. That is not a lie. Uh, He has said that I'm just an idiot and I don't understand the show, but if you understand it, you'll see how it's a good ending. Either way, Movie critics said this about it. It was the decade's most underrated ending. Or others said frustrating, a cop-out, cheating, just plain stupid. And if you've ever had a show that you loved and then the ending ruined it for you, you know the feeling I'm describing. It's like you've been building and building and building to this moment, and then the moment arrives and you're like, what? Now here's why I bring that up. Because I think that as followers of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, and you read through scripture, and you hear kind of the story from Genesis all the way up until the New Testament, things are building. Tension is mounting. Questions are getting raised. And you're like, I am so excited to turn to Matthew chapter one and get the announcement of this good news of Jesus. And what you get is bizarre. You actually get an ending to the story, if you will, that doesn't feel like a very good ending. There's no typical Christmassy things present in Matthew chapter one. There's no star there's no shepherds. There, there are no man, there's no manger scene. There's no angel singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. There's none of that. Instead, what you have, drum roll please, is a genealogy, a list of names. A genealogy, really? Like we've been waiting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years for the announcement of Jesus. And what you give us is a giant list of names. That's how you're going to start out your announcement that King Jesus has arrived on planet earth. Here's my assumption about you and I. Uh, If you read your Bibles, uh, maybe you've had a season where it's like, I haven't read my Bible lately. So I'm going to get up tomorrow morning, set my alarm early. I'm going to brew coffee, like have it ready to go. And then I'll find my favorite spot on the house. I'll turn to my Bible reading plan and imagine Imagine that's you and you wake up that morning so eager, so ready to dig into scripture, to get some nugget of truth, to kind of launch you out into your day. And what you turn to is a genealogy. You're going to be like chicken soup for the soul. This is really what I was hoping for today. No, you're going to do this. You're going to scan down the list of names real quickly just to say that you read it. And then you're going to skip to the next part because that's what we do. We don't see much significance with genealogies in scripture. However, with this one, this genealogy in chapter one of Matthew's gospel is one of the most beautiful, one of the most profound ways to think about Christmas that's really more than just an announcement about Christmas. It's actually an announcement of of what Christianity really is all about. And so let me just kind of bring you through a few things here. Notice in verse one of chapter one that it doesn't say once upon a time. Good stories start out that way, don't they? Legends and myths and fairy tales begin with once upon a time. But Matthew doesn't use that phrase once upon a time. Instead, he says this in chapter one, verse one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he gives a bunch of other names. 
Chapter 2, verse 1. Notice what he goes on to say. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, he just says it. Jesus was born. He doesn't really describe what that was like. He doesn't really go into detail. It's just like, and Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Notice that instead of starting out with once upon a time, like a good story starts out with, he starts out with this data and these facts happened. And this event occurred. And he gives us a location, like a timestamp, so that you can know in history when this occurred. And then he gives us a genealogy, names, kind of rooting this in reality. Like, you don't believe this story? Go talk to so-and-so because his dad was there and he saw this and they were related. And this is how he starts. Instead of this announcement of, of it being a fairy tale or a myth or a legend, Matthew gives us a good news announcement, not advice. Now, here's why this is such a big deal, because there's a chasm between announcing news that happened and giving advice to people, just a massive chasm that exists between those two things. Imagine with me for a minute that an army invades a city. What that city needs is actually good advice on what to do about that situation. They need to know, all right, put snipers up on the rooftops here, send the tanks in at this point, flank them on the left over here. Like that city needs good advice on what to do with this invading army that has invaded their city. But imagine with me for just a minute that the king has actually defeated that enemy and he's won the victory. Then what you need is not another uh, set of advice or things to, to do. What you actually need is just an announcement. Hey, the king has been victorious. The king has defeated our enemy. And what's happening in Matthew's gospel, the reason I love that he starts with a genealogy is because he's saying, hey, the Bible is primarily not a story of showing us how we can live as better people. It's not advice on how we can earn God's love or favor by changing our behaviors or doing things differently. It primarily is an announcement that the king has arrived, his name is Jesus, and he has defeated our enemies of Satan, sin, and death. This is not advice. This is fact. This is history. Friends, this isn't a metaphor. Christmas isn't something that we created just to feel better about ourselves and have a warm and fuzzy December in the middle of our cold season. This is real, and it actually happened. Starts with data and facts. Now, that's obvious. You don't have to scratch very far into the surface to kind of dig out that reality, but hidden a little bit deeper in the genealogy. If you kind of go down below the surface a few layers, there's stuff that's happening here that if you have an Old Testament background and some story will blow your mind. And so with that in mind, let's jump in and work our way slowly through some of this genealogy and then we'll unpack it together. Chapter one, verse one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, 
and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And look at this. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now let's just pause there. There is so much here, but just let me say this. Many of us struggle understanding why genealogies even matter at all. And it's because in our Western culture, you and I primarily identify ourselves and present ourselves to the world based on our accomplishments, where we went to school, what we majored in, uh, our, our work and our education levels and what it is that we're really good at. That's how we present ourselves to the world. Our resume is filled with, I've done this, I've worked here, I've you know, accomplished these things. And yet in the first century, it was not that way. It was a more traditional family-oriented culture where the, the self was actually subordinate to the clan or the family. And so what mattered more than you as an individual was who your family tree was, who your dad was and who his dad was and the things that your clan stood for and the things that your family accomplished. And that's why Josephus, who is the Jewish historian in his autobiography, actually starts off the whole autobiography with his own genealogy. That's his way of saying, hey, here's who I am and here's why you should trust me. So think of Matthew 1 like an ancient version of LinkedIn. It's helping people grapple with, here's who I am and here's why I have significance. Here's why I matter. Now, I know that there's bosses in the room that have read resumes and had the the decision of, you know, picking who you're going to hire. And most of us have written resumes. And if you've ever written a resume or read a resume, you know that there's a big difference between resume and reality, right? There's a big difference. Like you meet the person in, in real life and after having the resume, you're a little let down because their resume made them sound fantastic. And actually they're they're just normal people, you know? And, and, and when we write resumes, we polish them and we edit them and we, we, you know, tend to upplay our strengths and downplay our weaknesses. Like there's not a section in a resume that's like, here are the things that I'm really bad at. Here are the things that I'm insecure about. Here are the things that I get in my head over and kind of struggle to do. There's no resume section for that. Resumes are kind of highlighting why you should be trusted or hired for a job. That's the same way the ancient cultures treated genealogies the exact same way. They would edit them, they would polish them, they would kind of change them up a little bit so that as they present their genealogy, if they've got a crazy uncle, they're not going to talk about the crazy uncle, they're just going to leave him out of the picture. If your great-granddad was a murderer, that's probably not going to make your list of genealogies. You're going to leave certain people out. And yet, Matthew doesn't do any of that. In fact, what Matthew does is maybe quite the opposite of that. It's almost as if he finds the most questionable people and includes them in the family lineage of Jesus Christ. Now, there's so many ways that we could preach this sermon on Matthew 1 and the genealogy, but this is really interesting on one specific level. So let me, let me give you three things that are happening in this genealogy that are not happening in any other ancient genealogy that we have record of. The first one is that there are four women who are mentioned, all as great-grandmothers of Jesus. Now, that's significant because, again, in an ancient culture, they had a really bad, broken, unhelpful view of women. They viewed women and slaves as lesser than and not as uh, on par with or created in the same image as men. And so you had men, and then you had women that were subordinate to men. And so in genealogies, women never got mentioned, and yet here, Matthew specifically goes out of his way to bring up four ladies. Really interesting. The second reason that this genealogy is is different 
is that at least three of those women are not even Jews, they're Gentile women. So think about that. He's writing to a predominantly Jewish audience who did not value Gentiles. Again, they were in a sense racist towards Gentiles their entire life. Gentiles had been the oppressor, so they didn't have a good taste in their mouth about Gentiles. And so here they are, Matthew's writing to them. He brings up four women, and at least three of them aren't even Jewish. They're pagans. How fascinating is that? And then thirdly, all of them, all of the women that he mentions are either morally questionable or have something really shameful and broken about their past that makes them really, really unique to be brought up in the first place. So with that in mind, four women, four different stories. Let me give you the background. The first woman that's mentioned by name is a woman by the name of Tamar. You can read more about Tamar in Genesis chapter 38. Tamar was originally married to a guy by the name of Ur, and Ur was a really wicked, godless man. It says that God basically took Ur out of the picture, so Ur dies. And in that culture, one of the laws that God had given his people to protect women, what you're going to notice is that even when culture has jacked up views about people, God is kind of correcting those views constantly. So one of the things that God did was if, if you were married to someone and your husband died, then if your husband had brothers and they were not married, they were responsible to marry you so that you could be provided for and taken care of in a predominantly agrarian society that was really, really helpful. And so Ur dies and um, and then she marries Ur's brother, a guy by the name of Onan. And there's a lot I'm going to leave out about his story, but he was really jacked up and wicked as well, so God removes him from the picture, and Onan dies. Now think about this. If you're the dad to Ur and Onan, and you've just given two of your sons to this woman, you're getting a little nervous that maybe something is wrong with Tamar. You know, you never think, well, something's wrong with my boys. He's thinking something's wrong with this woman, and if I give my last son, a boy by the name of Sheila, if that was his name, unfortunate. Um, if, if, if I give old Sheila here to, to Tamar, I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen uh, to him. And so what, what Judah does, the dad, Judah withholds his son and refuses to give his last son to Tamar. And Tamar realizes over time, he keeps lying to her and deceiving her. And she realizes, I think he's actually being unjust to me. I think he's trying to hold out on me. I think he's trying to, to keep back from me what I need to survive in this culture. And so she finally realizes it. Judah's headed on a trip to another town. And so she preemptively makes her way to that town before he gets there. And she dresses up as a prostitute. And when Judah arrives into the village, she basically seduces Judah, her father-in-law. He sleeps with her and she gets pregnant. Now, he didn't have any money at the time to pay her, so she said, it's okay, give me your ring and give me your staff, your signet ring and your staff, and I'll hold those as kind of payment until you can send payment, I'll hold these. And then, uh, and he doesn't know that it's his daughter-in-law at this point. She goes back to her hometown, and then later, weeks pass, months pass, and you can't hide the fact that you're pregnant forever, and uh, all of a sudden, the village realizes, hey, she's, she's pregnant. And Judah freaks out. He's ready to kill her. He's angry. He's furious. So right before he takes her out of the village to try to kill her, she goes, hey, before you do this, here are two items that I want you to look at, your signet ring and your staff. This is when Judah realizes, like, I've actually been the one that has done something really wrong and really shameful here. This is sort of like a Jerry Springer episode. I mean, absolutely dysfunctional family at every level. And yet, friends, catch this. Tamar becomes the great, great, great grandmother 
of our Savior, Jesus. This was the, the family that he inserted himself into. Second woman that's mentioned by name is Rahab. You can read more about Rahab's story in Joshua 2. Rahab, just to be very frank about it and honest, was a sex worker in Jericho. Jericho was not a city like we think of cities. It was a fort city. So soldiers lived there and she basically got paid and made her living by sleeping with these soldiers as they would come in for a beer or whatever. And this is how she survived. And the Israeli spies came into Jericho at one point to try to kind of assess what was going on and then attack Jericho. And she basically protects these Israeli spies and in turn of them protect, in turn of Rahab protecting them, uh, they spare Rahab when they invade Jericho and take the fort city. And so what happens is Rahab actually gets brought in and becomes a part of the people of Israel and becomes one of the great, great, great grandmothers of Jesus. Third woman that's mentioned is Ruth. You can read more about Ruth in the book by her name, Ruth, or uh, her family history in Genesis 19. Now, I love Ruth. Uh, on, on the surface, Ruth is incredible. She's one of my heroes in Scripture. She's absolutely fantastic. But part of the story of Ruth that's really important to realize is that she was a Moabite. And we don't really know much about that as a modern culture, but Jewish people absolutely hated the Moabites. The reason why is because the Moabites had their start as an ethnic group because Lot, a guy by the name of Lot, Abraham's brother, or one of Abraham's relatives, sorry, had two daughters. And one night, his, one of his daughters got Lot drunk and slept with their dad. The next night, the other daughter got him drunk and slept with her dad. And both of those ladies got pregnant, and that was how the Moabites started out as a people group. They were considered by the Jewish people as unclean because of their incestual relationship with their dad and kind of their start as an ethnic group. And so they were so hated and so seen as unclean and dirty that the Jewish people did not allow them anywhere close to the tabernacle, and they weren't allowed to enter into the temple. They hated the Moabites, and yet Ruth becomes the literal great-grandmother to King David and one of the mothers, the grandmothers of Jesus himself. The last woman that's mentioned very quickly here is a woman by the name of Bathsheba. You can read more about her story in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Now, I don't know if you noticed, did you notice how Matthew referred to Bathsheba? He actually didn't refer to her by name. He refers to her this way, the wife of Uriah. And that's really important because uh, Bathsheba ends up having Solomon. But before she had Solomon, she was not married to King David. She was actually married to another man by the name of, of Uriah. And Uriah is off fighting David's battles. David is the king of Israel, should have been out there fighting those battles with his, with his soldiers. Instead, he was kind of lounging up on his roof. And he looks over a little ways and he sees Bathsheba bathing. And he begins to lust after Bathsheba. And so what David does in, a, in, abusive, in, in, a, in an abusive uh, kind of manipulative power sort of way, he brings Bathsheba to the palace and then he sleeps with Bathsheba even though it wasn't his wife. He sleeps with her and basically abuses his power and she was the victim of sexual abuse. She ends up getting pregnant. So to cover up the pregnancy, David has Uriah, not only one of his soldiers, but actually one of his close friends, has Uriah murdered on the battlefield, kind of has this whole ploy of getting Uriah killed to try to cover up the fact that he got Bathsheba pregnant. 
And this whole bizarre story ends with Bathsheba being brokenhearted and then getting married to King David. And then eventually the baby that she has dies. And then she has another baby, Solomon. And it's through this broken, painful story that our Savior Jesus shows up. Now, here's what's so fascinating why these women? Why these women? Matthew could have included any other ladies from Jewish history. In fact, there were four other matriarchs of Israel, ladies that were held in high esteem by the people of Israel. You had Sarah, Abraham's wife. You had Rebecca, Isaac's wife. You had Rachel and Leah, who were both married to Jacob. You had these four ladies that were kind of seen as the matriarchs of Israel. If you grew up as a little Jewish girl, those are the ladies that you hear about. Those are the heroes. Those are the people that you aspire to. And yet Matthew doesn't include those four women. He includes people like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. Why? Well, here's why. Because Matthew And really more importantly than that, God the Father is intentionally crafting this genealogy to show us the love of God that's revealed for you and I at Christmas time. There are three quick things that I want you to see about how God's love is revealed at Christmas, specifically through this genealogy. Here's the first one. It's God's love through identification. God's love through identification identification. Here's what I mean. When most people today visit Ancestry.com or MyHeritage.com, you're doing it because you're curious about your family lineage. But one of the added bonuses is when you find out that you're related to a past president. That's pretty cool. Or maybe you find out that you're related to British royalty. That's pretty cool, right? There there are things about our family lineage that it's like, I want to go back and find out who I'm related to. Uh, Pastor Sean Evans, his, I can't remember, 14th or 15th grandfather was William Flippin' Wallace, believe it or not. If you don't know who William Wallace is, that's Braveheart. Sean Evans' grandfather was Braveheart. I kid you not, if I pulled up a picture of Uh, William Wallace, you would be like, that is Sean Evans right there. They look the same. I kid you not. I'm German. I don't want to know who I'm related to, (laughs) right? It's scary back there. I don't want to go back. And here's my point in saying all of that. There are certain people that you want to be identified with, that you want to be associated with. There are other people that you're like, I don't want to know that I'm related to Adolf Hitler. I'd rather not know that. I don't want to know that my great-great-great-grandfather was John Wilkes Booth, the guy who killed Abraham Lincoln. You know, like, I don't want to know that because I don't want to be identified with those people. There are some people that you and I would love to be identified and others that we'd be ashamed to be identified with. Friends, not so with Jesus. Jesus is actually not ashamed to be identified with anybody, especially the worst of the worst. Jesus strategically plans out his family lineage and chooses to be identified with Tamar or Rahab, the sex worker, or Bathsheba, the one that carried shame, not from something she did, but something that was done to her. Friends, there's no one that Jesus is afraid to get really close to. Hebrews chapter two, verse 11 says this, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. 
He's not afraid to look you in the eyes, knowing your story, knowing your past, knowing the things that are getting pulled back up from things that happened years ago. He looks in you in the eyes and he's not ashamed to say, brother, sister. He wants to be close with you. Hebrews 11 verse 16 says, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for he's prepared for them a city. Martin Luther described this reality this way. He says, oh, Christ is the kind of person who is not ashamed of sinners. In fact, he even put them in his family tree. Now, if the Lord does that here, so ought we to despise no one, but but put ourselves right in the middle of the fight for sinners and help them. So I don't know your story. I don't know what you're carrying in the room today. I don't know what's going on in the the recesses of your past. But what I know is that Jesus picks the worst of the worst of the worst and says, family. And today he wants to do the same with you. He wants to move towards you, not away from you. And if you're a follower of Jesus, this is the same heart posture that you and I are being invited into. There should be no type of person alive in our culture today that we should be ashamed of, that we should not be unwilling to to get in the middle of and get in their lives and get in the mess and the muck and the brokenness and the dysfunction because this is the way that Jesus is with us. That's the first thing I want you to see is his love through identification. Secondly, real quickly, his love through the offer of grace. His love through the offer of grace. See, part of Jesus entering into this story and having a genealogy wasn't just to identify with us, but think about this. God, the uncreated creator of all things, has now forever in Jesus Christ an actual family tree and a genealogy because he was born and he entered our world and he actually came through Mary and and Mary has family and Joseph, her husband, has family. And now Jesus, full in the flesh, God in the flesh, is coming not just to identify with us, but to offer you and I grace upon grace upon grace. I've used this uh, story in the past, but it's too good to not share. So you're just gonna have to put up with the fact that I've already said it. But um, in the 90s, there was a siege on Sarajevo, and I'll show you this picture. A bomb had gone off uh, during the siege that killed 21 innocent victims in the marketplace that were in line waiting for bread. 21 people were killed just waiting in line for bread. And what this famous cellist did is he climbed down into the bomb crater the next morning and for 21 days straight climbed into these bomb craters and these broken out buildings where bombs had gone off and these victims had died. And he protested the darkness of this violence by playing beautiful songs on his cello, protesting the darkness with beauty. Friends, here's what God the Father has done for us in Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that he sent Jesus into the brokenness, the muck, the bombed out craters of not just our world, but of our very lives. The place where something broken and bad has happened, and you think nothing good could ever come from this, Jesus gets into the middle of that, and he doesn't protest us. He protests the darkness. He protests the brokenness, and he does it with beauty by living the life that we should have lived, by dying on a cross in our place and rising again for us. Friends, Jesus so closely identifies with you, not just that he wants to be close with you, but on the cross, it says, he who knew no sin, 
became sin for us. That means he took the broken things that we have done. He took, he took the broken things that have been done against us. He took the shame and the dysfunction upon himself and he died in our place so that you and I could be offered his grace and his righteousness in ways that we did not deserve. This is what Christmas is all about. He came to sit in the bombed out craters of our lives and offer us grace. This genealogy in Matthew shows us that. Frederick Bruner, a New Testament scholar, says it this way. One gets the impression that Matthew poured over his Old Testament until he could locate the most questionable liaisons possible in order to insert them into his record and so finally to preach the gospel even in his genealogy. This gospel teaches that God, listen to this, he can forgive, overcome, and use Jewish and Gentile sinners for his great purposes in history. Not just forgive you, but actually use you. This is how far his grace comes to us. And that leads me to the third and final thing I want you to see. It's his love through the offer of a new story. You see, apart from Jesus, had Jesus never come, Tamar is just Tamar, the one who tricked her father-in-law to sleep with her. Rahab is just Rahab, the sex worker, who did one thing right, ultimately to save her own skin. Ruth is just the unwanted foreigner who came from an incestuous past that's really distorted and dysfunctional. Bathsheba is just the one who carries the shame of being sexually taken advantage of. And she's just gonna be forced to live with that till the day that she dies. Yet, through Jesus, all of that gets changed. Tamar becomes the great, great, great grandmother to the savior of the world. And her entire story is turned on its head and redeemed. Rahab is no longer known as the prostitute, but now she's actually mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 and what New Testament scholars refer to as the hall of faith. Ruth, the foreigner, is welcomed in and she becomes the great grandmother to King David and eventually one one of the mothers of Jesus. And Bathsheba, friends, Bathsheba's shame is taken away as she becomes one of the mothers of Jesus. I don't know what your story is, but what Jesus does is is not whitewash it. He doesn't delete it. He doesn't undo it. He takes your story and he redeems it. And he completely turns it on its head. And what you were ashamed of, what you were broken and busted up over, what you felt like, if I could just have a do-over on this one thing, I would do anything to get this part of my story back. What Jesus does is he gets right in the middle of it and he offers you love and forgiveness and grace. And then he turns your story upside down. Addicts become sons and daughters. The sexually broken, which is all of us, become washed whiter than snow. The greedy and the selfish become generous. People that love to outrage against their enemies become people who offer enemy love to other people. Deadbeat dads who have walked out on their families get turned into men who actually bless their children instead of curse them. 
Unfaithful spouses become faithful who adore their spouses and offer love and sacrificial fidelity. The poor get raised and inherit all things, even the earth through Jesus Christ. There's nothing, nothing about your story that cannot be redeemed by the big and the unstoppable, the good, redeeming love of Jesus. He knows your story. He's looking at you today with eyes wide open. He is not ashamed of you. He put himself right in the middle of your story. So wherever you are, you can receive his love. Friends, that's what Christmas is all about. That's what it's all about. That's why we celebrate. That's why we give gifts. That's why we cook good food. That's why we offer love to people who don't deserve it. Because when we were unlovable, when we were the untouchables, when we were the ones that should have been outcast, he came and he put himself right in the middle of our story and he made us family. So you can stand.